James chapter 5, and this morning we're just really going to be focused on one verse, verse 12, but I'll begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 12 of James chapter 5. Listen now to the reading of God, God's holy word. Come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, And your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we do uh, praise you and thank you for your word. It is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this one verse, we pray that you would help us to see the uh, the, the truth that is here and the instruction for us uh, regarding uh, oaths and vows and the words which we speak. And we pray that you would truly impress these things upon us in our hearts, that your name will be lifted up and glorified. And so we pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. One of the key themes of James' epistle, as we've been uh, considering, has been consistency. Consistency between a Christian's profession of faith and how they think, speak, and act. Indeed, as believers in Christ... Our purpose in life is to live for the glory of God and to strive toward that ultimate goal of being more like Christ. We acknowledge that we can only do this by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in us that uh, enables us to do what we've been called to do. And indeed, by living Christ-like lives, we acknowledge that we aren't looking to secure our salvation because that has been secured already in Christ, but rather it's through our obedience that we're demonstrating the sincerity and the liveliness or the aliveness of our faith in Christ. Therefore, we understand that there should actually be then a noticeable difference between how we as followers of Christ, how we live our lives, and how the rest of the world uh, lives. 
sometimes this is easy to do. And other times we may find it more challenging. Now, certainly we may be able to keep ourselves from murdering someone or from robbing a bank, but we may actually struggle with thoughts, words, and actions that reveal hatred in our hearts. Things that reveal uh, lust and unclean thoughts. Envy, even, for what others have. But as James has emphasized repeatedly, really one of the most challenging ways that we struggle with consistency is in what we say and uh, taming our tongues so that the words we speak reflect a heart that's truly been redeemed by Christ and that exhibits a sincere love for God and love for our neighbor. We could too easily curse, condemn, criticize, ridicule, tear down, judge, and abuse by the words that we speak. And now James adds another dimension to this challenge. Consistency in swearing oaths, taking vows, and making promises. Indeed, this involves not only doing what you say you're going to do, but also speaking of the truth plainly, without any hint of deceit. And so in living your life for Jesus and the glory of God, are you true to your word? Well, James' charge here in verse 12, we see that this was clearly an issue for those to whom he was writing. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now the words above all here connect this charge to what has come before it. For example, the cause for patience in the midst of suffering, refraining from complaining against your brother, and even restraining yourself from seeking revenge as you look to the coming of the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you strive to do those things, well, it's not going to matter much if your words can't be trusted and the vows and the oaths that you make are meaningless. See, it was common practice among the Jews to swear oaths and, and make vows. In fact, such things were actually expected as a part of showing one's commitment to God and worship. We sang about this already in Psalm 65. Uh, another example in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. The Lord says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and to Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. And the psalmist sings in Psalm 116, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. And so swearing an oath involved calling upon God as a witness to affirm that what you were saying was true. And if you promised to do something and swore an oath in God's name to do it, well then you were held accountable to actually follow through and do what you promised to do. And the fact that God was called upon as a witness would certainly add a, a level of solemnity to the occasion. If anything, you would certainly give much thought before making oaths and vows 
if you did so in God's name, knowing that the righteous and holy God would stand as a witness either for you or against you as you carry out and do according to what you said you were going to do. And so if you were going to swear an oath, though, God forbade swearing by any other name, person, or thing, but His name alone. It was, in fact, spiritual adultery to do so. The judgment had come upon Israel, indeed, for this very thing, because the people swore to Baal in the name of Baal and and in the name of other false gods. But the Lord promised restoration if they would return to him and swear alone by his name. Jeremiah 4.2, the prophet says, And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. But the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. You see the whole point of swearing in the name of God, and then doing what God, or what you promised to do, was to, uh, to be a witness to the other nations. That the God of Israel was the one true living God. And so there were various uh, other regulations regarding oaths and vows that we find in the Old Testament. For example, you couldn't bind yourself to anything that was not good and just. In other words, you couldn't swear an oath to do something that was sinful and clearly forbidden by God. Right? That would be contradictory. On certain occasions, the priests or civil rulers might call upon the people to swear an oath as they gave testimony about what they had done, seen, or heard. And this is very similar to uh, what we have in our courts today, our courts of law. Now, ordinarily, oaths and vows were intended to be made voluntarily, to show one's commitment and devotion, but at least on some occasions, uh, they were required. Again, uh, if they were trying to make a judgment uh, related to uh, law or, or law breaking. But ordinarily, they were uh, oaths and vows were voluntary. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, well, it shall not be sin to you. And so, obviously you could, if you made a vow, well, then you need to do what you vowed to do. But there was no, uh, uh, nothing compelling you to make a vow in the first place. If you didn't make a vow, then there would be no sin involved. Uh, if nothing was done. Again, the key is that if you make that vow, you were fully obligated to keep it. And the warning continues here in in Deuteronomy 23, that which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vow to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so if you open your mouth and make a vow... And swear an oath in the name of God, well, God will hold you to account for it. And so swearing oaths and vows were certainly a part of Israel's worship and devotion to God. But what about in the New Testament? Are we to swear oaths and vows in God's name? Now, many Christians believe that this is forbidden. 
they contend support for this by not only looking to James' word here in verse 12 where he says, Do not swear, but also they look to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which James is obviously remembering here. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Well, then what do we make of all this? Are swearing oaths and vows now suddenly forbidden in the New Testament era? Well, not necessarily. In fact, as we consider um, what the issues were that Jesus and James both were addressing, we see that they weren't forbidding oaths and vows, but rather they're warning against the abuse of the practice of swearing oaths and vows. And that's the theme that we see throughout, uh, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, when he speaks to the law, he's not doing away with the law, but he's addressing the various abuses of the law, and that applies even here to swearing oaths and vows. Again, Jesus in Matthew 5 charges, do not swear at all, but it's qualified by saying, neither by heaven, nor by earth, nor by Jerusalem, nor shall you swear by your head. See, the Jews highly revered the name of God, and that was a very good and right thing to do. But in the, in the period between the Testaments, when the, uh, they were uh, working on the traditions of the elders, and a lot of those traditions, they, they sought to place a hedge around the law of God. Again, uh, there was a, maybe a good intent. They didn't want people violating God's law. But the problem with those hedges is that they were the laws and commandments of men, and they soon not only covered over the law of God, but often contradicted it and replaced it. Also during that time, there was much superstition that crept in, and to such a point where they so highly regarded the name of God that they refused to speak it. And even uh, some Jews today will refuse to speak the name of God, and, and it might be like a, you'll see a G-D, um, and they just will not, they'll just refer to the name, but they will not say the name of God. And so when they would make oaths and vows, they would find substitutes to swear uh, by that were closely associated with God, so that they weren't going to use God's name, but something that was closely associated with God. So, for example, heaven, which was God's throne. Uh, they would swear by earth, which was God's footstool. They would swear by the Jerusalem or by the temple, uh, which was the dwelling place of God, where he symbolically dwelt in the, uh, in the midst of his people. Well, again, not only did this violate God's very clear requirement that an oath or vow must only be sworn in his name, but again, eventually, the standards by which they vowed became more and more mundane so that oaths were sworn on one's head or uh, would basically be one's life. Or they would swear an oath by their beard or their house or other objects. 
And the problem that, that occurred was the further and further they moved away from the solemnity and the perfect standard of accountability in God's name, the less serious and sincere the oaths and vows became. And so swearing oaths basically evolved into a license to lie and make empty promises under the pretense of being honest and sincere. And if someone gave you the word and vowed a vow swearing by their beard, well, it, it might be that they actually do what they say, but there was no guarantee that their words meant anything at all. Well, this is what James, and then later, uh, or before James, Jesus was condemning. These kinds of false oaths and vows, or vows and oaths that basically were meaningless. Well, we see a similar problem today. Right? We live in a world filled with lies and liars. And this is why witnesses in court, for example, are called to swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Because people, even all of us here, are natural born liars. David sings of this in Psalm 58. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. And yet even in those psalm instances where such oaths are made, people treat it lightly. People have no problem perjuring themselves in court, lying under oath, speaking what they want to speak, oftentimes in order to uh, save their own hide. And we see such laxity toward making promises that are never intended to be kept during a political campaigns as we now really enter into that time of year, right? Politicians are saying that they're going to do this or that, and then once they're elected, they either um, do the opposite or they do nothing at all. We see this also in, in rampant loan defaults and bankruptcy claims. And a paper is signed saying that a, a certain amount will be repaid to the lender, but that signature, which stands for your word, ends up meaning nothing. We see a lack of commitment and the high divorce rates. Again, so much time and money uh, people spend on a wedding and on the dress and the flowers and the food and the venue, and they want it to be such a, a perfect day, but they give very little thought to the vows that are made, vows that often invoke the name of God, that it becomes that those vows suddenly become optional to uphold, and a failure to do so ends up being no big deal. Well, I made these vows, but they didn't really mean anything. I changed my mind. And we could go on and on about business transactions and relationships, promises and commitments made that are never fulfilled. And again, oftentimes many of these uh, ha are made with no intention at all to fulfill them. They're clearly deceptive. But this is what we find all around us today. It's as if no one's under any obligation to anyone to tell the truth to be held to the word, or to keep their promises. Right? People make promises, but their, their fingers are crossed behind their backs. They say foolish things like, I swear on my mother's grave, or I cross my heart and hope to die. 
Or they might say for the third or fourth time simply, I swear honest, I won't do it again. Such oaths and vows are worthless because there's nothing to hold the person accountable, right? You swear on your mother's grave? Well, what's that going to do? She's dead. How's she going to intervene in any way to hold you accountable? Cost my my heart and hope to die? Well, really? Who's going to see that through? Again, if oaths and vows are made, they ought to be taken seriously. And the only way for that to happen is if it's made in God's name. And the one who is the judge of all the earth will then be the one to call the accounts on the last great day. As we stand before the Lord and give account for every idle word that we speak. And we talked about that last time. And so it's these kinds of false and empty oaths and mouths that Jesus and James are condemning. In fact, Jesus himself, we know, was called upon to swear an oath before God when he was on trial before the high priest. In Matthew 26, uh, Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus took the oath. He spoke the truth. But of course, we know what happened. They didn't like the truth that he spoke. And they charged him with blasphemy and condemned him for for doing it. So Jesus himself swore an oath. The Apostle Paul also uh, calls God as his witness repeatedly when he declares the truth. And he does this, for example, in, in 2 Corinthians 1. And so again, swearing oaths and vows is a lawful activity for the believer. But those oaths and vows and promises that we make must be sworn according to God's command as we noted before. They're to be sworn only in the name of God, not by some lesser standard that trivializes the matter and which cannot truly hold us accountable, but only in the name of the sovereign Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, may we swear an oath or a vow. If we swear an oath or a vow, we must be diligent to keep it, knowing that God will hold us to it. Therefore, when we make a promise... It ought to be something that's actually within our, our power and our ability to actually do and accomplish. You can't promise someone the moon since you can't feasibly give them the moon. So we ought to be able to do it, what we actually uh, promise. We also mustn't vow to do something that God, again, has clearly forbidden in His Word. And again, in the context of James 5, that could very well be swearing an oath or a vow that you're going to seek revenge on those who persecuted you. Right? Someone's treating you harshly and they, they do something to harm you. You say, well, I swear I'm going to get them if it's the last thing I do. Well, that's an evil vow. And you ought not to make such a vow. But to remember that justice, justice belongs to the Lord and we ought to um, not to swear for revenge but trust in the Lord's justice and His uh, righteousness to bring the matter to an end. It's also important to keep in mind the voluntary nature of oaths and vows. 
unless, of course, you're called to be a witness in a court of law. Right? So no one can compel you to make a vow, and you aren't obligated to make vows that God hasn't commanded. Some take vows, for example, of poverty and celibacy, thinking that they're going to gain a higher degree of holiness and perfection, but nowhere in the Scriptures does God command such a thing, and so we ought not to make such a foolish vow uh, as that. It's also important to know clearly to what it is you're swearing to do. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 2, which is titled, Of Lawful Oaths and Vows, states in paragraph 4, that an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. And so there should be a clear understanding, because again, the responsibility that comes with keeping an oath or a vow is very serious. Also forbidden in this regard would be things like forswearing. That is, swearing to something in advance when you have no idea what it might entail. And so this kind of forswearing is one of the reasons why Christians ought not to align themselves with what we call secret oath-bound societies like the Masonic Lodge. Because they require forswearing. They require you to make vows when you don't even know what you're vowing to. And they also require you to make a vow of secrecy. Again, when you don't even know what the secret is. We ought not to live in the darkness and secrets. But as Christians, we're called to live openly and in the light. And so we ought not to be a part of such uh, groups, uh, secret oath-bound societies. <clears throat> and so making oaths and vows are lawful, though, as long as they fit with what God has commanded and the parameters that He has given to us in His Word. To make an oath or a vow in a way that God hasn't prescribed, or to make it in God's name and not keep it, is actually swearing falsely, and would then be a clear violation of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not hold you guiltless. If you swear falsely, swearing oaths and making solemn vows, then, again, though lawful, should wisely be kept at a minimum. Right? We don't want to be swearing oaths and vows for everything that we do, but we should keep them at a minimum because we need to keep in mind the responsibility and the accountability that we're placing ourselves under. Again, if you consider the seriousness of the obligations involved, if you consider seriously that God is being called as your witness, well, that should cause you to be very, very careful in the vows and the oaths that you make and to, take, to not take those vows lightly. Now, some of the lawful oaths and vows that we can make, Again, we mentioned earlier, uh, to speak the truth as a witness in a court of the civil government, uh, or even in the ecclesiastical courts, to keeping in mind that some have spoken the truth in the name of God in the courts of men, and they've done this even as Jesus did and before uh, the high priest, and he was persecuted and judged and condemned for speaking the truth. And we ought to remember that that, ought to come our, that may come our way. But we ought not to fear such situations. 
For Jesus Himself promised, Now when they bring you up to, uh, to the synagogue and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you shall answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We're called to speak the truth. And we trust that the Spirit of God will give us the words of truth to be spoken appropriate to the time. And so when we are a witness in court we can take these lawful oaths and vows. Those who are married or who are intending to be married, again, should be challenged to take their their vows seriously. And again, though these vows are made before God and witnesses, again, they're very often taken so lightly with very little sense of true commitment, duty, and obligation. And some even go into the marriage thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, we can get a divorce and do something different. And that's not the way to enter into a marriage. It's doomed to fail right from the start. But God declares that if you swear an oath, And if you make a solemn vow to love and cherish for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do you part, well, you are going to be held accountable to that. Again, many couples are too quick to throw in the towel without uh, pressing on in the hard work of standing by their word and the promises that they vowed. Another example of a vow that we take as believers in Christ, we're called to publicly profess our faith and unite with a local visible body of, of fellow believers. And we do this by taking vows of communicate church membership, declaring before God and witnesses our faith and commitment to Christ and our desire to serve Him and others in and through the local visible church. When we bring our children before the Lord for baptism. We, we vow and promise to train and nurture them in the fear of the Lord and to teach them of their covenant obligation to repent and believe the gospel. And so we should take those vows seriously and be regularly reminded of what we've committed ourselves to do as we raise our children. Officers of the church, pastors, elders, deacons have taken ordination vows making promises to strive to be faithful to fulfill the duties that Christ has called them to fulfill in His church. It's one of the issues that Presbytery was dealing with this past week, was a man who swore these vows, and yet he was refusing to submit himself to the uh, courts of the church. Well, that's a violation of the vow that he swore to uphold. The officers of the church are to love, tend, care for, protect, feed, and minister to those whom Christ has placed in their care. And again, we know, unfortunately, some take these vows very lightly and with impure motives. Right? They abuse their authority. They endanger the spiritual well-being of God's people. But they should be reminded that Christ will hold them to their vows And he doesn't take kindly to those who harm the sheep for whom the blood of Christ was shed. And so the Christian can carefully, thoughtfully, sparingly, and with clear understanding, swear oaths and vows to the Lord. But, again, when they're made, they should be faithfully and diligently kept, even as we fully rely on the grace of God to keep them. 
But there's another important aspect to the charge that James is making here in verse 12. He isn't just speaking about making oaths and vows, but there's even a more basic issue at stake. He's charging believers to simply be truthful in what they say and in what they intend to do. When he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, whatever you say, whether it's in the form of an oath, a vow, a promise, or just a simple statement, there should be no deceit. There should be no hidden agenda, no mystery, no fraud, no falsehood, but a clear, direct, loving speaking of the truth. Both in what James is saying here and in what Jesus previously said in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a dramatic charge to be truthful that people shouldn't have to wonder and question whether what you say is true or not. Right? They should, by your consistent example and practice, know that when you speak, you are speaking the truth. Now this isn't easy. Again, we noted before that in our sin nature, speaking lies comes naturally to us. It takes great skill to not only attain the tongue and keep it from speaking things that it shouldn't, but to also work at having it consistently speak the truth and bring light to the conversation. But this is how Christ has called us to live. This is how we live lives that are radically different from those in the world around us. And so again, it comes back to James' overall theme of consistency. We should be consistent in speaking the truth. Our words to others should mean something. We should be reliable and dependable. If we say we're going to do something, well then we should actually do it. In fact, we shouldn't need to swear an oath or speak a vow to speak the truth at all. But in those cases when we do need to swear an oath, or we do need to make a solemn vow, again we need to make it and take it seriously. We need to be mindful of the duty and the obligation that we're placing upon ourselves. We need to remember that God is our witness and that He will not fail to hold us accountable. And so we must strive vigorously to keep the promises, vows, and the oaths that we make. We must be true to our word. And by consistently speaking the truth, we're preserving the integrity and the honor of the name of the Lord that we confess. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. By speaking the truth, we're being consistent with the one who is the truth. And in that consistency, we will actually be a steady testimony and witness in a society and culture that flourishes on lies and deceit. The light of the truth in us, the Lord Jesus Christ, will shine through for the glory of God when we speak the truth and remain true to our word. But if we don't, that is if we don't speak the truth with any consistency, if we don't take our oaths and our vows seriously, if we don't strive to fulfill the duties and the obligations that we swear upon ourselves, well, then we're to be warned of the very precarious position that we place ourselves in. 
For as James has warned several times already in chapter 5, he does so again at the end of verse 12, lest you fall into judgment. Judgment is coming. We know this. Judgment is coming because the one true, holy, righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming. And when He comes, He will call us to account that every careless word that we speak will have to give an account for. And Jesus warns, we'll have to give an account of all these things on the last great day. Again, friends, this isn't easy. I mean, acknowledge that. We certainly can't do it in our own strength. It's impossible, really, unless the Spirit of the living God graciously works in us and enables us to live lives that are truly consistent with how Christ calls us to live, even when it comes to speaking of the truth at all times and being true to our word, our oaths, our vows, and the promises that we make. So that truth and the glory of Christ might shine in us and through us to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and for this challenge to be true to our word that we speak. We should always be careful of the words that we speak to have no idle words. And especially when we have to make an oath, swear an oath, or make a vow or promise that we do so according to your word and as you give instruction that it is only in your name because there is no one greater than you and you are the one who will hold us accountable to it. And so if we make such a vow or an oath, we rely upon your grace to help us to fulfill it and accomplish it. So that even by the witness of the consistency that we speak the truth and that when we promise to do something, we follow through and actually do it, that even by that consistency, people will know and they will see that consistency. They will know that we live our lives very differently from the way the rest of the world lives. And that they, as they acknowledge that difference, might inquire and ask us, for the reason of the hope that is in us. Why are you so truthful? Why do you speak the truth at all times? You always keep your word. Why is that? And that we can then have opportunity to share the gospel with them. That they too might consider carefully the words that they speak. And the vows and the oaths and the commitments that they make. Because they will stand before a righteous and holy judge. So we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for these things. We pray that you would continue by your spirit and your grace working in us to accomplish these things for your glory, honor, and praise. We pray for your uh, blessing upon your word in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.